Hey, welcome to Portico. It is great to have you with us. And uh, if you're joining with us from the Video Cafe, we want to uh, welcome you as well. And we are one church, but one message, but many expressions. And so uh, right now our Milton campus is going to be meeting uh, the same time as, as we are. And so it is just great to have you with us. I don't know how you're feeling today. A little bit of a chill in the air this morning. Anybody else wake up early today and find a little bit of white stuff on your car? Anybody? Me too. I'm, I'm not happy about this. I just want you to know I am not happy about this at all. Anybody with me? Okay, well, maybe we can go and start the California campus together. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, uh, that's really not on the agenda this morning. Well, t- take out your, uh, your Bibles. We're in a series called The Journey. We've been looking together at ordinary people on a quest of faith. And uh, if you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love to be able to uh, help you out with that. Just raise your hand up nice and high. One of our ushers will come and uh, bring you one of those. You can borrow that for the service and just leave it on the seat when you're done. But uh, we've been in this series, Ordinary People on a Quest of Faith. And uh, we've talked about all kinds of characters from throughout the Old Testament and learning together from their journeys. Not really uh, the highlights so much as some of the low-light reels of of what people went through. And what I am always encouraged about when we look at these characters together is that they were just that. They were ordinary people, but, uh, you know, in God's hands, did great things, but also had their hang-ups and stuff. So so we're learning together from each and every one of them. And today we're going to look at a very famous character from Scripture. And... um, His name is David, but we're going to look at a part of his journey that perhaps isn't quite as famous. And so if you have those Bibles that we just handed out, or you have your Bible with you, we're going to get you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel and uh, chapter 30, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But before I dive into the story, I want you to think about something for just a minute. I want you to think about a time in your life when you got just a little bit cocky and thought you were all that, and you ended up doing something and failing miserably, okay? So just think about it for a second. I know this will be very encouraging for you first thing in the morning. Think about your failures, okay? And uh, go ahead. You got one? I don't know. If you're like me, you probably have a few to choose from. And, uh, but, but here, listen to one of mine, okay? Grade 11. And I was an A student in high school, always had been, and believe it or not, math was my forte, It was my favorite subject, and I know you think that's weird, and you're thinking, huh, he doesn't look like a geek at all. But anyway, math was my favorite subject. And so, um, you know, what I loved about it was the fact that if you do math correctly, if you do it the same way every single time, you will always get the right answer. And that's part of my personality, I think. I love things that work. I love things that are neat and tidy and that make sense. And so, because it had always been easy for me, I didn't really work at it that much. And I didn't listen to the teacher all that much. But then I got to grade 11, and I treated math in grade 11 like I always had. But what I didn't know was that somewhere between grade 10 and grade 11, math got incredibly harder. And it turned out that it was a big deal that I wasn't paying attention. And by the time I realized that I was struggling 
I was too proud, too self-confident to ask for anyone's help or to let anyone know that I was having trouble. And so, you guessed it, by the end of my first term, in that grade 11, I had a failing grade in math for the very first time in my life. Not just, you know, not an A, I was actually failing. And I didn't handle it so well. You know, my, I remember taking that report card home, and, and I was dreading handing that one over to mom and dad, you know, and, and uh, it stayed in my, in my school stuff for a while, maybe a day or two, I can't remember, and then, you know, your parents always remember. They were like, hey, weren't you supposed to get report cards this week? And uh, I was busted, so I, you know, I gave it to them, and, and uh, man, when they asked me about my math grade, I immediately sprung into defense mode. I began to blame somebody else, anybody else. I, you know, it was because of my teacher. I didn't like my teacher. She was a real battle axe. That's what I told my parents. And it was her fault that I was failing. And, you know, it didn't have anything to do with me. It didn't have anything to do with not doing the homework. It didn't have anything to do with, you know, skipping half the classes. It didn't have anything to do with any of that. I can talk freely about this because my kids are gone now. One's in university and so they're not here this morning. Didn't have anything to do with those things. And, you know, it was somebody else's fault. Everybody else in the class, I said. Nobody else likes the teacher either because that always makes it better, right? It gives you some more. And, and so we had this conversation. But the truth was that I could no longer do it like I had always done it. I couldn't just show up and get the marks that I used to get. And, and I thought I didn't need anyone's help, but I was wrong. And so I dreaded you know, dealing with that. And when my parents saw what was going on, they immediately sprung into action. They marched me into the school and they made an appointment with Mrs. McKenzie. I was mortified. I mean, what were my friends going to think when they saw me going after school, you know, into that woman's office? It was going to be awful. And we went and and we were there. And and when we got to her office, mom and dad started to share their concerns. And, and, uh, you know, I was being very quiet, but I was shocked to find out that Mrs. McKenzie was actually a pretty nice lady. And she thought I was okay too. She said, you know, I think Jeff is, is uh, you know, not doing well right now, but he's just not working up to his potential. And if he would work at it, if he would really apply himself, didn't you hate it when they said that when you were in high school? <laughs> he would really apply himself. He'll do okay. And she was sure that I could, you know, pass and even excel. And so she promised to work with me after school until I was getting the new material. And my parents immediately promised that I would be there and that I would not miss class and that I would do my homework. I guess at this point, apparently, I didn't have much say in the matter. And so they, you know, made all these promises for me. And then later when we got home, they made it very clear to me that if I did not show up or do the homework, it would be detrimental to not only my social life, but potentially my health and well-being. Well, long story short, by the end of second term, I was not only passing math, but doing very well. My attitude had changed. I was doing what I was supposed to, and by the end of the year, I was back getting, you know, those high 90s in my math course and enjoying math again, and you're all going, oh, please. Uh, Not every course was like that, just so you know, but I love math. Well, why do I tell you all that? I'm not really sure, but it was fun, right? No, really. Uh, We want to look today at this, this idea, there's a lesson that we want to learn about the danger that, that can happen when we rely on ourselves and rely on our own strength and go our own way, and then how we should handle 
the failures that often result. Because very often when we try and do it on our own, that's what, that's what occurs when we leave, when we leave you know, God out of our equations. And so take out your sermon notes. Let's look at our story together. And as you read, I want you to kind of get this visual picture of the story of what's happening in your mind. Story about David and his mighty man. It's in 1 Samuel 30, verses 1 to 6. And here's what it says. It says that David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag, and they had attacked Ziklag and burned it, and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. And when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord, his God. So do you have the visual? Here's David and his 600 men. They're on their way back, returning from their exploits with the Philistine army. The road has been long. It's been arduous. They've been traveling for days to get home, maybe longer. And, you know, they come around that last bend in the road or maybe over that last hill, excited to be home and see loved ones that they hadn't seen in so long after all of this time of being away, only to look and see their village in ruins and disarray. Some of the buildings are partially broken down. There is rubble from the broken walls lying in the street. The flames are gone, but smoke slowly wafts skyward as the ruins of their village continues to smolder. The sights and smells of destruction hit them, but there is something else. No bodies. There is an eerie emptiness in Ziklag. No one is around. The windows of the buildings that are, that are there are still intact, but they're void of anyone standing in them and watching for them to come home. There are no sounds of voices, no children laughing or even crying, no chatter of women in the street. It's a terrible, terrible scene. And we have to ask ourselves when we read a section of Scripture like this, how did David and his men get to this point? What is it that has brought them to this this terrible moment in their lives. And in order to get a sense of what really is going on in our text, we need to go back just a little bit in the story because context always helps to explain a lot for us. And so we know that David has been anointed king by the prophet Samuel, but he's not king yet. Saul is the king. And Saul has been hunting David because Saul wants to continue to be king and he's worried about David becoming king, all right? So, but, but then you have this, you know, God is with David. God has his hand on David. He's anointed David as the next king, and he has chosen him. And now David has a group of men who have aligned with him in his cause. And in spite of more than one opportunity, David has refused to kill Saul because he knows it would be wrong to harm God's anointed. And so we've got all of this that's been going on in the background And because of all of it, David has been running for his life and trying to, he and his men, just trying to stay ahead of Saul and and Saul's men. 
And he gets to a point where he gets tired of running, and he, he takes matters into his own hands. He decides that he knows best what to do. And herein lies the problem. When we get to this point, this kind of mindset, that we know what's best, and then we can set ourselves up for failure and for trouble. And if you're filling in your notes, here's the first principle that I want you to catch as we unfold the story of David and his mighty men at Ziklag, and that is this. Guard your heart against the subtle deception of self-reliance. Guard your heart against the subtle deception of self-reliance. You see, here's what happened to David. David came to a point when he forgot to look to God for direction, and he chose instead to rely on his own strength and his own wisdom. And there is a subtle danger, a subtle deception here that we need to guard against. Look back just a few chapters with me and listen to the language that David uses in 1 Samuel chapter 27 and verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, but David thought to himself, one of these days I will be discovered by the, or destroyed by the hand of Saul. And the best thing that I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. What did you hear a lot of there? A lot of I, a lot of me. David thought to himself. You see, just for a while there, David forgot. He forgot that it was God who had arranged for him to be anointed king. And, and he forgot that it was God who would see to it that he got to the palace safe and sound. And he chose to go his own way. He deceived himself into thinking that he knew better, and he chose to rely on his own wisdom rather than on God's way. So there's a question. Have you ever been there? Have you ever thought that you knew better? Have you ever tried to convince yourself that your way was the best way to go? You knew that you were, what you were doing was wrong, but you did it anyway because it seemed to make sense and nothing else was working. Maybe you thought that God wasn't, wasn't going fast enough for you and you found another way, a better way, so you thought. And you relied on your own strength and your own wisdom and you went your own way. And this is what happened to David. And you see, there's, there's something you need to catch here. You might know what's good for you. We can think of lots of things that, that are good for us, that might work out in the end, that might be okay, that seem like a good plan at the time. You might know what's good for you, but only God knows what's best. I think that's, you should, you should write that down. That's good. You might know what's good for you, but only God knows what's best. And look what happens here with David. Look where David ends up going. You know, he gets this great idea in his mind. I think that I'm going to go so that, you know, Saul can no longer reach out to me where I am and he'll forget about me. Where does he go? He goes to the land of the Philistines. I mean, these are the enemies of Israel. Talk about, you know, stepping outside of the boundaries now. And he thinks that he'll be safe there. He thinks that Saul will forget about him and not follow him into enemy territory. And you know what? Where Saul is concerned, it works for David. Saul forgets. He, he doesn't bother chasing him into Philistine territory. And so while David is there, it seems to be okay for a while. But I want you to know something. You cannot outrun consequences. Somehow, some way, the consequences of your disobedience will always catch up to you. 
David and his men, they, they go to the Philistine country, they settle into their own routine, and in order to sort of get by and I guess make ends meet, they go raiding into other parts of, of that country and they, you know, take plunder. And, and not only that, what's worse is they actually end up aligning themselves with, with Achish and with the Philistines and they start, they start accompanying the, the Philistine army into battle. Like just unbelievable stuff. The Philistines, you may remember, are the ones where Goliath came from. How soon David has forgotten. Even though they're, they're working now with the Philistines, they're raiding into different parts of the country with the Philistine army. It's short-lived because it's interesting, you know, even the Philistines know that David shouldn't be there. Some of their company complain that David and his men are with them and and even though the leader, you know, the king Achish, likes them for the sake of his own men, he sends David and his company back to Ziklag, which was the village that he had given to them when they had first come to him seeking refuge. And you can read all about that in 1 Samuel 27 and uh, in 28-29, uh, the, the chapters in between uh, what we're talking about today. And so David and his men in our text, they're returning from, from being out with the Philistine army, and they're returning from Aphek to Ziklag only now to find the place burned to the ground by the Amalekites and their wives and their children carried off. You know, everything seemed to be going great. They had escaped the pressure of being hunted by Saul and his men. They were home free, or so they thought. But now, here, in this moment, disaster had struck. Absolute disaster. And there's a great lesson for us here, and, and we can read about it in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and 12, so if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Be careful that you don't fall, and it's great advice. You see, David, he had it all figured out. He thought he knew better. He would go to the land of the Philistines. He would be safe, but he wasn't safe. And even their calamity and disaster followed. And it wasn't just his safety that was at stake. He had 600 men with him that he was leading and that he was responsible for. And now, largely due to David moving outside of the boundaries of God's will for his life, he had put all of them at risk as well. And they were now paying the consequences. Very, very insightful, isn't it? You know, it's been said that the safest place that anyone can be is at the center of God's will for their lives. No matter what the circumstances around them, no matter what dangers may be there, if they are at the center of God's will, that's the safest place that we can be. And the, the reverse, the opposite, is also true. When we move outside of the boundaries of what God's will is for us, then we are putting ourselves and those around us at risk. That's what David discovered. He had aligned himself with a sworn enemy in order to try and achieve safety for he and his men. But he wasn't safe. Even in Ziklag, away from Saul and his men, failure and disaster found him. Just an interesting sort of side note here. You know, we talked last week about, about the far-reaching impact of our sin. You remember that? Achan and sin in the camp and how that so many people were affected by Achan's failure. Well, it's interesting for us to note here today that the Amalekites... The Amalekites were the, the people group that Saul was supposed to wipe out back earlier in the book of Samuel. If you go back 
to, uh, to when, when uh, God sent Saul to fight the Amalekites, he gave him specific instructions. He said, wipe them all out. I don't want you to keep anything, nothing, animal or beast, shall be left alive. And you remember, the prophet Samuel comes to Saul and he says, what's the sound I hear? I hear, you know, the bleeding of sheep and, and of, of uh, rams. And, and what's going on here, Saul? And Saul made an excuse. Oh, well, I, I saved some of the best so that I could sacrifice to God. And, and what was the lesson there? To obey is better than sacrifice, is what, is what God was trying to teach Saul. But, but here's the other thing we note here now today, is that the Amalekites were not wiped out. They were still, they were still around. And now they've come back, and, and David is, is struggling with that very, very result of Saul's disobedience. Interesting, isn't it? Later, David would write in Psalm 118 verses 8 and 9, and this, this verse is not in your notes. You may want to just jot it down. But here's what he would write later on. He would write, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Interesting. I, I wonder where David learned that. Maybe, maybe he learned it right here in the land of the Philistines when trusting in Achish and King Achish didn't lead to the success he was hoping for. Well, we go back to our story. And David and his men, they're standing in Ziklag, they're mourning, they're weeping. It's not a pretty picture. And it says that all of them wept until they had no strength left to weep. All had been lost. Their wives, their children had been carried off. And the men were now turning against their leader. David was feeling some stress of his own here in this moment. His own two wives had been carried off as well, but now the men were also thinking of stoning him. So, you know, there's, there's that stress as well. It's kind of a stressful moment. And David had a choice to make in this moment. He, it's the same choice that all of us need to make when we realize that our own efforts have led us to failure. And here it is. Do we, do we run away? Do we blame someone else, you know, like I did with my, with my math teacher? Or do we blame God, maybe? Or do we own our failure and turn to God? You see, here's the next principle I want you just to, to write down. Failure is an opportunity to be reminded of God's faithfulness. Failure is an opportunity to be reminded of God's faithfulness. It was clear to David that things were not going well. But David did something that we all need to do when we come to the bitter end of our own attempts and our own wisdom. And here's what he did in 1 Samuel 30 and verse 6. It says, David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David encouraged himself in the Lord his God is what another translation says. He found strength in him. How do you suppose he did that? How did David find strength in this moment? What was it about his experience with God that strengthened David in this time of utter despair and even fearing for his life? Do you know what I think it was? I think that David remembered. I think that cutting through all of the fog of David's own efforts and of his failure in this moment to stay within the will of God for his life came the memory of a God who is faithful. You see, this wasn't the first time that David had been in a tight spot. It's not the first time that he had, had been afraid for his life. When he was a, a boy tending 
his sheep. He had been attacked by a lion and attacked by a bear. And there's something interesting about remembering what God has done for us. It gives us, it gives us the, the energy and the courage to carry on. And so when, when he was about to fight Goliath, you know, Saul's trying to talk him out of it. But David said this to Saul in 1 Samuel 17 and 37. He said, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And so Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. See, failure has a way of bringing perspective, doesn't it? Has a way of causing us to reflect. And I think that David remembered the ways that God had been with him in the past. You know, I was thinking there's another great example of this in the New Testament, the story of the prodigal son, how the son, you know, takes his inheritance and leaves for a far off country. And the Bible says he parties hard and gets involved in all kinds of things that he knows he shouldn't. He, he squanders his wealth in wild living, it says in Luke 15. And then when all the money is gone and famine hits that part of the country where he is living and he finds himself without any money and without any friends, they've all now disappeared and gone into the woodwork. And he has to ends up feeding the pigs in order to be able to sort of just make ends meet and actually eating the food of the pigs so that he can stay alive. And he's got some time now to reflect. And he's thinking... You know, I'm in this situation because of me. I'm the, only, I'm the only one that I can blame. I took all my inheritance. I came. I lost it all. And here's what comes to his mind. I've got a father. I've got a father who is successful and who has servants and who has money and who has food. And, and you know what? I've got a father who, who I think, you know, maybe loves me. But even as a servant in my father's house, I would be better off than what I'm doing right now, feeding these pigs and eating their food. And so he gets up and he goes home. And you know the amazing end to that story, how that the father opens his arms and he welcomes him and he's restored back to the family. Because when we, when we fail, when we come to the end of ourselves, if we will just remember the faithfulness of the father, it will help us to gain the perspective we need to be able to go and to begin to be restored. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, he said, the greatest glory in living lies not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. He knew that God was faithful, even though David had failed, had relied on his own strength and gone his own way. God had not changed. The same God who delivered him from the bear and the lion, the same God who had given him victory over Goliath, the God who had anointed him the next king of Israel, would get him through this too. And here's the great thing about God. Here's the great thing about God. Paul says this about God to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and 13. He says, if we are faithless, he, God, remains faithful. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. And David was about to discover that God's faithfulness was not just in his memory, but it could be experienced again with the proper attitude in that moment. And here's the last thing I want you to note this morning, and that is this. Restoration is dependent on the posture of your heart. Restoration is dependent on the posture of your heart. Attitude is everything. That's what the posture of your heart is talking about, about attitude, about humility. You know what? We've got to to own our own stuff when we mess up. And so David didn't blame God, he didn't blame his men, he didn't make excuses, but he owned his failure, 
And the Bible tells us that he did something else. Look at verse 8 of our text. And David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue this raiding party? Will I overtake them? Remember, David was leading 600 men, and his men were watching him to see what he was going to do. There was unrest in the camp. They were talking about about stoning him, and so they were interested to see, how is David going to handle this? What is he going to do next? So the big question was, what's going to happen now? And David did not disappoint. He stepped up to lead them. But this time, before he moved out, he inquired of the Lord. He prayed to God, and he turned to God in his moment of weakness and failure, and he sought God's direction, something that he hadn't done when he brought them all into the enemy territory of the Philistines, something that they hadn't observed the last time they made a major shift. But he didn't do it. He didn't lead them now out of anger or bitterness or even suffering or loss. He led with humility. He inquired of the Lord. He prayed to God, and really, it's the posture of David's heart here that was key. And it's the posture of our heart as well that is key when we have failed. This is what is said about David in the New Testament. It's a statement that echoes God's words to Samuel when David was chosen out of a lineup of Jesse's sons to be anointed the next king. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 13 and verse 22. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything that I want him to do. Isn't that great? Now, you know David's whole story. David didn't always get it right. The story of David's encounter here in Ziklag is a reminder of one of those times, but even fast forward, Bathsheba and Uriah is another huge one that kind of blips on the radar. And you'll talk about this more in your your community life groups this week, your small groups, but it is worthy of note that in order for David to recover from his huge indiscretion with Bathsheba, and the resultant murder of Uriah, it was the posture of his heart when he was confronted with the accusation that, that mattered. Because David did not respond with, with any kind of haughty denial, but he responded as a contrite and a broken and a repentant person. Read Psalm chapter 51, and you'll hear the language. Oh God, created me a clean heart, O oh God. Rest- renew a right spirit within me. And so it's encouraging, isn't it? I mean, I find it encouraging that even a man after God's own heart is capable of getting off track, of going his own selfish way, of messing things up, of complete and utter failure. It's encouraging because it gives us hope. It helps us relate. We can get our eyes off God so easily and begin to rely on our own strength and on ourselves, and it can happen so fast sometimes it makes your, it makes your head spin. The important thing for us to learn here is that failure is not fatal. Failure is not the end. There is a way forward. And when we fail, we need to be reminded of God's faithfulness. And then we need to come humbly to God and seek his forgiveness and his direction as we move ahead. The end of the story for David, it was a happy one. He listened to what God told him, and and a group of his men were able to catch up with with the perpetrators, and and after fighting them all day long, from dusk until evening, he was able to defeat them and bring back everything that the Amalekites had taken, all that had been taken from David, and his men was completely restored. What a happy ending. So does that mean that every time we fail and every time we mess up and there, are, there is loss and consequences because of our failure, that if we'll just 
you know, remember God's faithfulness and, and come humbly to him that, that we'll get everything back that we lost in the process? No, it doesn't. It was, it was a happy ending for David, but it doesn't always happen that way. I can't tell you that there's some kind of magical formula that will take place here, but I can tell you that any kind of restoration before God requires us to be reminded of his faithfulness and to come humbly to him and seek his forgiveness and, seek, and, and be repentant. It wasn't easy for David. You know, even though he eventually got it together, when God sent him to get his wives and his stuff back, David had to physically fight the enemy for an entire day. And so sometimes restoration will be a struggle. It's just the way it is. But our biggest challenge in life is when we try and take control when we try to take the reins and, and take over from God and do our own thing, I, there's an acquaintance of mine, pastor, friend, who was pastoring a church through a set of very difficult circumstances, and he was finding it so challenging, finding it so hard, and sometimes the, the attacks had gotten personal. And so in the midst of all of that, a friend of his who is going to a, another large church called him and said, I want you to come and, and be on my staff, and, and you know what? He, he saw it as a way out. He didn't pray about it. He didn't ask God about it. He just thought, this is my ticket out of here, and I'm going to go and do the easier job. And I remember a late night phone call about four months in, when my friend called me and he said, Jeff, I don't know what to do. I've made a serious mistake. I've made a terrible mistake. He knew that he was outside of the will of God for his life, and he was absolutely miserable so miserable that he resigned with no other church to go to. But he was convinced that he needed to come back and seek God's will and his direction. He started to work a, a retail job for a number of months. And, and eventually, you know, God led him to plant a church. And it was hard. It was a struggle. It was tough. It was hard, hard work and hard slugging. But it was the beginning of his way back. It was the beginning of God's restoration in his life. And it was humbling for him but he embraced it. And you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad he owned it. And it was, it was the thing that helped him to get back into ministry, into the center of God's will and what God had for him. And so I want to ask you today, are you somehow outside of God's will for your life? Have you gone out on your own? Have you become reliant on yourself, your own strengths and abilities instead of relying on God? If you're making choices based on expedience, over, you know, biblical values, on what seems right to you rather than on what is right. And I think you need to do a, a heart check this morning. I think that, that you need to ask yourself, how's your heart? Are you making decisions like David did? Are you deciding about things based on, on what's convenient rather than on, on seeking God's will and his direction? Remember, David was all about him. He thought to himself, he said, one of these days I'll be destroyed. The best thing I can do, I will slip out of his hand. All of this emphasis on me and not seeking God's direction. Do you hear how that sounds? Does it sound familiar? If it does, I believe that all of us here today need to pause in this moment and say, like David eventually said in Psalm 139 and verse 23, you can just jot that down in your notes. Psalm 139, 23, David said, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
How's your heart today? Is it all about you? Or is your heart fully submitted to God? Do you need to do just a little recalibration this morning, a little bit of a heart check and ask God to help you to get it right with Him? Maybe you're realizing today that Doing it on your own has led you to failure, and you just need to be reminded this morning that God is faithful, that He has been there for you in the past, and you need to come to Him with a humble heart this morning and be restored, whatever it is, for you today. I pray that in these moments that you'll do what you need to do as we just reflect on the condition of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your faithfulness in our lives. And God, thank you for your word that that helps us to understand, God, how you want us to live and and what your will is. And Lord, we want to pray like David prayed and say, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down, and you are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And yes, so often, God, we want to go our own way. And we need to just pray to you, God, forgive us today. Forgive us for our independent spirits. Forgive us for our failures. Remind us of your great faithfulness and of all that you have done for us, and help us to come to you humble and contrite and to seek your face and your direction. God, we want to be people who are like David and who you could say of us, look at their heart. See, see them. They, they have a heart after my heart. God, that's our prayer this morning. And so, Father, I pray that as we just reflect in these moments as we listen to the words of this song that you will challenge us, that, Lord, you will help us to open up our hearts to what you want to do in us today. We pray it in Jesus' name.